Thanks for tuning in to the August 2017 edition of RehabCast. We're the official podcast of the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, and we're brought to you by the field premier journal, Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. The journal is thrilled to report that our impact factor rose to 3.289 this year. The top five journals in rehabilitation medicine are Neurorehabilitation and Neural Repair, the Journal of Physiotherapy, the Journal of Neuroengineering and Rehabilitation, and IEEE Transactions in Neural Systems and Rehabilitation Engineering, and us, the Archives. Now, in this edition, we're going to talk with Dr. Matt Davis. He's in charge of spinal cord rehabilitation at TIER in Houston. Dr. Davis, along with many other spinal cord injury specialists across the country, have seen a concerning downgrade in hospital care for people with SCI since the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services implemented a particular pay-for-performance quality measure. Keep listening to hear a tale about what harm can happen when a powerful push for boosting quality actually neglects a population of patients who need special care. Now, our featured article from the journal builds on evidence suggesting that we should rethink steroid injections for lumbar spinal stenosis. We're going to be talking with that study's lead author, Dr. Jana Friedley of the University of Washington in Seattle. But first, the news. Now, did you see those headlines that yoga proved effective for nonspecific chronic low back pain? Published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, the study comes from Dr. Robert Saper, a family medicine doctor at Boston Medical Center who's interested in complementary and alternative medicine research. He designed his large trial as a non-inferiority study, comparing a course of yoga to usual physical therapy or education with reminders and summaries that were centered on the Royal College's well-regarded back book. Boston Medical Center is a safety net hospital. Consequently, the folks in this trial were mostly low income, They were different from a lot of prior work on yoga. It's a large trial with 320 participants, and it stretched out over three months, potentially, if folks attended all the yoga classes or PT sessions, which many did not. The bottom line is, though, that both yoga and PT achieved modest gains, mainly the achievement of 20% less pain medication use at three months and one year later. Self-rated disability scores improved a little in all three groups, yoga, PT, and education, but weren't statistically different. Now, there are some big cost advantages to using yoga as a treatment in this population, which often has poor access to physical therapy, even when properly insured due to high co-pays. And yoga classes can obviously treat groups of patients at a time, as opposed to the one-to-one physical therapy standard. Now, a big issue with the study, though, and potentially one reason physical therapy didn't edge ahead of yoga was the lack of any particular diagnostic effort. This study treated, again, nonspecific low back pain and subjected everybody to the same nonspecific treatments. The physical therapy assessment called for classifying patients into a subgroup of stabilization or so-called specific exercises based on signs and symptoms. The treatment didn't involve any manipulation or modalities, but mainly exercises centered on stabilization, extension, and or flexion. Now, more activity is better than none, and I'm not going to belittle anything too much that adds to the evidence base for something as clearly beneficial as Hatha Yoga. But one could argue that the physical therapists in this trial had their hands tied and that it wasn't a fair fight.
Though I haven't gone so far as to ask him about it, I doubt the subject of our next news item would be a big fan of that Boston yoga trial. We're talking about a man who at age 80 aims to become the oldest person to sail solo nonstop around the globe. He tried twice before in 2013 and 2014, the last two times stopping in South Africa after his ship had suffered critical damages. Back in 2014, he told reporters he wouldn't try again, but now he's equipped with a new super-fast cruiser ship designed for him in France and built in Germany. It's the Kiwi Spirit II. And he's going to do this as a fundraiser for the Foundation for Physical Therapy. This comes after he and his wife, Dr. Catherine Potla, announced last month their personal $3 million donation to the Foundation for Physical Therapy. That's the largest single donation in that organization's history. I'm talking about Stanley Paris. He's a true giant in physical therapy. We're at a time in our history where it is so important that we have the evidence that shows the value of what we do. We're an underappreciated profession, and we need to create that evidence, and that's through research. But it needs to be big research. We, we do a lot of small research, but the foundation is responsible for training future researchers and for allocating funds to the best people to do the job. So by giving money to the foundation, we know it will be handled correctly and spent effectively to create the evidence that influences our practice. Dr. Paris has been a fierce advocate for physical therapy throughout his career, and that includes backing the APTA's Vision 2020 statement. That statement called for complete autonomy of the physical therapy profession until it was subsequently revised to a more neutral stance in 2013. Now here's a rather stirring segment from his APTA Mary McMillan Award Lecture in 2006. Here I've referred to Vision 2020. I was privileged to be on the board of directors then, and I wondered if the profession had the courage to implement that vision. Well, now I am convinced that we have that courage, but I also know that there needs to be much more debate and discussion on how to get there, to get to where we are recognized as the practitioners of choice. For if we are not recognized as the practitioners of choice, all else will be for naught. The teasing out of the six pillars of the Vision 2020 during the presidency of Ben Massey has further strengthened our resolve. It is time now for us to be confident in what we know and what we can do and to display that confidence in all aspects of our professional lives. Now, of course, my area is in musculoskeletal. And when I look to that area today, I'm aware that most physicians do not have the time, the skills, <clears throat> nor the interest in conducting an adequate clinical examination of the musculoskeletal system, and nor should they, for their place is in the diagnosis and treatment of disease, whereas ours is in the diagnosis and treatment of dysfunction. As more than one physician has said to me, why do I need to know how to examine the back? What difference can, does it make to the pain medication and the anti-inflammatory that I prescribe? Well said. <laughs> I do not mean to challenge the medical profession, other than to have them recognize the full scope and depth of physical therapy so that they will more frequently refer that 40% of their practice that is musculoskeletal to us directly rather than to the surgeon and without delay. Unquestionably, 
medicine and surgery can save lives, but no profession speaks to the quality of those lives better than does physical therapy. Now, we are, of course, in competition with all those who treat musculoskeletal conditions, not just the surgeons who would choose to operate whenever they can despite the literature that supports conservative care over surgery, but also with the chiropractor, massage therapist, athletic trainer, and multiple others who refer even less frequently to us as they seek to advance their own practice and scope of license. Competition is American. It brings out the best in us, and this profession of ours must adopt a competitive stance at every level, from education to research and, of course, practice. With the guide and Vision 2020, I can see that the train is leaving the station with our leadership and most members on board, but many will, I fear, be left behind. Too many of our colleagues think like technicians, and if in practice, send out prescription pads that look like an inventory from an antique store. <laughs> they are, you've, se you've seen them. <laughs> they are threatened by our new doctors of physical therapy, unwilling to address them as doctor, even when in appropriate professional situations. They also are the ones who work in salaried positions as ancillary personnel to physicians who practice referral for profit. They drag us down with their lack of professionalism, vision, and sense of autonomy. <clears throat> they seem to mock our growth and do little to advance health care. They work for our competitors rather than offering the best in physical therapy and are thus cheating the patients and clients from their just deserves. To them, I say, the train has left the station. We are now an autonomous doctoring profession, and all those who through apathy or conscious decision, all those who don't decide to get on board with us, shall be left behind. Now, I'm not going to lie, that can be a painful speech to listen to as a PM&R physician like myself, but looking at what medicine as a whole has wrought, I can certainly see where Dr. Paris is coming from. Now, ACRM is an interdisciplinary organization, and even as we work together, it's hard to begrudge each individual rehabilitation profession standing up for its own expertise and scope of practice. Now I know that in many areas of complicated rehabilitation care, we are stronger working together however we evolve to accomplish our professional goals over the years. And I'm sure that the staunchest advocates for autonomous practice, like Dr. Paris, can agree with that. Dr. Paris's own life story is a remarkable American tale. He was raised in New Zealand by a father who was the first male physiotherapist in that country. The young Dr. Paris left New Zealand under the threat of lawsuit by the New Zealand Chiropractic Board, who argued that he was infringing on their turf by daring to provide manipulation therapy as part of his physiotherapy practice. He came to Boston University, where in 1966, the head of his department blocked him from performing manipulation, even though Dr. Paris had written a book on the subject and was being invited to conferences to speak about it. He moved over to Massachusetts General Hospital, and he practiced his skills there in rather guerrilla fashion, broadly interpreting doctors' PT orders. Now, this is a man who intentionally prolapsed one of his own vertebral discs during a three-level myelogram in the name of science. The American Medical Association, which had already been provoked by chiropractic, turned its Committee on Quackery to Dr. Paris, subjecting him to investigation. 
The APTA itself initially rejected his efforts to form a clinical orthopedic group, but eventually bowed to surging interest when Paris's splinter group attracted enormous membership. Paris went on to found the Journal of Manual and Manipulative Therapy, published by Taylor and Francis, which is the official journal of the McKinsey Institute. More importantly even than that, he founded the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences, which in addition to DPT degrees trains its students in occupational therapy and nursing programs to the doctorate level. Dr. Paris is going to launch his third attempt at circumnavigating the planet again this November, launching from St. Augustine, Florida. I wish him well, and I've made a donation myself to the Foundation for Physical Therapy in honor of the effort, and you can as well at uh, foundation, the number four, pt.org, backslash Paris Sale. And he's even going to put your name on the boat. Ahoy! Let's talk with Dr. Matt Davis. He's clinical medical director of the spinal cord injury program at Tier Memorial Hermann in Houston, one of the best rehabilitation hospitals in America today. Matt joins us today to talk about a bit of a regulatory odyssey that he's experienced in the world of Medicare implemented guidelines. Now, as we all know, neurogenic bladder is an almost defining characteristic of spinal cord injury, and it can be associated with some quite serious consequences to the kidney and systemically in terms of autonomic dysreflexia. Matt's going to tell us about what he's seeing in his practice that's changing for the worse and why he attributes it to a quality improvement measure of all things. Matt, please start at the beginning. Uh, what is the guideline at issue? The guideline in question is, or the, the quality measure in question is the catheter-associated urinary tract infection quality measure, or CAUTI quality measure. And uh, this is part of uh, uh, Medicare's quality initiative. They're, they're wanting to reimburse hospitals and physicians based on um, the, the quality of patient care rather than on the quantity, the, the amount of procedures we do on patients. Uh, and, and so as part of that, it's viewed that most catheter-associated urinary tract infections are, for the general population, certainly they're preventable medical complications. Uh, it's, it's well understood that catheters are often left in longer than they need to be. And uh, so they want hospitals to be more intentional about removing unnecessary catheters. Uh, so what, what the, the way that, that things have been structured, um, Hospitals that have uh, above average rates of catheter-associated urinary tract infections will have that reported on a publicly accessible website. You can have a report card for your hospital that shows that Hospital X is you know, scoring poorly in catheter-associated urinary tract infections, uh, along with other indicators of, of uh, quality. And uh, if you fall below a, a certain threshold, your hospital is... Uh, uh, liable for a financial penalty. Uh, and so, uh, you know, this is overall for the general population, this is probably a very good quality measure. I think it's probably reduced the number of unnecessary catheters uh, in, in patients, but it, it didn't have any sort of uh, special consideration of the, the spinal cord injury population. And that's a fascinating issue with, with guidelines in general, which many have baked in some type of review and comment period. And, and, 
the idea that the guideline may not be perfect and that based on future data, it may need to be revised. I guess what's different in, in what we're seeing in recent years with the implementation of quality measures coming out through CMS that are, that are linked to publicly reported measures and certainly linked uh, to payment is that they have such teeth and such force and can influence hospital systems so strongly that they are extraordinarily powerful weapons, uh, both for good and potentially for ill with regards to a small population relatively for most medical centers like the spinal cord injury population. And that's what you and your colleagues have seen. Uh, once this guideline came out and you started to notice some challenges in your population, y'all, started to approach the folks who designed the guideline and, and talked with the CDC. We'll kind of get into that, but first let's talk about what it is you've seen and the patients coming to you. Yeah, so I first started noticing this in, uh, I think it was early 2013, and I just noticed kind of an uptick in the number of patients who are arriving to my spinal cord injury unit, uh, inpatient rehab unit, without uh, indwelling catheters in place. Uh, you know, prior to this uh, development, most patients came to me with a, uh, with a Foley catheter in their bladder and, and their bladders were well decompressed. And I just had a number of patients who were admitted and, and the nurses would tell me, oh yes, this patient came in and they had a liter or almost two liters oftentimes of, of urine in the bladder. Uh, I even had one patient who had gone into acute renal failure uh, and had some moderate hydronephrosis, um, so some evidence of kidney damage on his renal ultrasound. Uh, and so when I looked into this, I talked to my uh, hospital's quality department, and they, they had mentioned that this uh, measure had recently been, uh, had recently been developed. It, it had been in development for a while, but it had recently uh, been tied to financial reimbursement. They felt like that was the reason that we were seeing this. And Matt, you started to notice that these changes in your patients were showing up in about the spring of 2013 after the measure had rolled out the prior year. How did you react? After that, I started looking, uh, I started just kind of surveying the catheter volumes of all of my patients who came to me who had had their catheters removed. And when I looked at their acute care records, uh, I would say that I would notice that the majority of my patients had uh, the majority of their bladder volumes uh, above 500 cc's, so kind of in the unacceptably high range. You even had some patients who appeared to have been suffering from autonomic dysreflexia that wasn't picked up uh, that's how bad their, their bladders were enlarged, and this is a problem that, uh, that was kind of well-documented through medical records that you were seeing, Then patients are reporting severe headaches and so forth, and, and it's not been linked. And it's really perhaps a problem that didn't exist so much before because folks had those folies, everybody felt comfortable placing them, and if you didn't do too much about a spinal cord patient, you knew they're obviously not urinating too well, you feel comfortable leaving them in that Foley catheter, and I suppose... Uh, that these types of quality measures presuppose too much knowledge that, that clinicians don't have who don't see a lot of these patients. You know, that's a good point. I mean, everybody knows how to insert and manage a Foley catheter. On the other hand, when it comes to uh, managing intermittent catheterization and when it comes to recognizing autonomic dysreflexia, that does tend to be something that is specialty specific. Uh, so, for instance, there have been a couple of published studies demonstrating that you know, emergency room providers have very limited knowledge of what autonomic dysreflexia is and how to manage it. Uh, and yet the most common cause of autonomic dysreflexia is bladder overdistension. And I think that what we're seeing here is uh, a, a simple order for perform intermittent catheterization every four hours is not sufficient. 
um, especially in patients who are in the acute care setting where they've been getting a lot of IV fluids for uh, low blood pressure that's typical for you know the early stages post-injury. The quality measure does suggest and kind of push people towards intermittent catheterization as an option in these patients. But of course, many hospitals aren't staffed and equipped to do this well, and it's not even necessarily good medicine in the acute spinal cord population, right? Correct. The, the clinical practice guidelines for early acute management of spinal cord injury, as published by the Consortium for Spinal Cord Medicine, recommends uh, leaving the indwelling catheter in place until fluid resuscitation is complete and really until, uh, until uh, fluid monitoring is no longer needed intensively. And, you know, what I'm seeing is these catheters are being pulled early, early in the hospital stay when patients still have really high urine output. And there are a number of reasons why uh, patients in the early acute phase of spinal cord injury can have, ex you know, extremely high urine output. And, and even though these patients have high urine output, these catheters are still being pulled oftentimes. Mm -hmm. So you've seen serious consequences in patients that are coming to you. Uh, others have as well. Uh, you and your colleagues in spinal cord injury medicine decided to get together. You know what? We're going to respond to this CMS quality measure, which, again, on the whole, may be helping the general population, probably is helping the general population, but seems to be posing harm to this specialty population. And uh, it's really over the course of years uh, that you've had ongoing discussions with the groups involved and ultimately the implementation of the measure, and you haven't gotten anywhere yet. Uh, I know it's, it's been a long road. Could you kind of give us some of the highlights of what you've seen so far and the types of responses that you're getting? Yeah, certainly. So initially, I, I felt very good about the response that I was getting. There was, a, as you mentioned, a lot of these quality measures do have public comment periods. And so I, I uh, commented to the National Quality Forum uh, about this uh, measure, and they, they immediately put me in contact with someone from the CDC uh, who the, the CDC is the steward of this measure. So the CDC collects the data uh, from hospitals about their rates of catheter-associated urinary tract infections, and the CDC feeds that data to uh, Medicare for the doling out of uh, financial penalties if a financial penalty is needed. Um, and so immediately I was, almost immediately, I was put into contact with uh, the stewards of the measure from the CDC uh, you know, this was after I had coordinated a kind of a, an electronic comment campaign. Uh, and uh, we had a couple of phone conversations uh, that seemed to be moving in a positive direction. Uh, and, and then things just kind of stalled for reasons that, you know, I don't want to put words into someone else's mouth. They, the explanations that I was getting for uh, why, why we weren't moving forward with this never seems to really satisfy me. I eventually presented on this topic at a national conference for spinal cord professionals and uh, was able to recruit uh, the president of that organization and the lead author of the Neurogenic Bladder Clinical Practice Guidelines for Spinal Cord Injury. Uh, and uh, they joined me on one of these, on a couple of these phone conferences. Um, and uh, that was, you know, it seemed like a, it would be a good boon to our, to our movement. But uh, once again, um, we didn't make a lot of headway. I will say we did eventually make some headway with the Joint Commission. Uh, so there are a lot of, of groups that are interested in um, improving catheter-associated UTI rates uh, and improving patient safety in that way. And the Joint Commission has gotten involved in that. Uh, and 
uh, we were able to write a letter, uh, a joint letter that was signed by the presidents of the American Spinal Injury Association and the president of the Academy of Spinal Cord Injury Professionals. And uh, that resulted in a change to the Joint Commission's uh, Quality National Patient Safety Goal. Wonderful. What was that change? So the, the National Patient Safety Goal now uh, contains a kind of a disclaimer box that uh, mentions that there are certain populations in which long-term indwelling catheter management may be the best option. Uh, and spinal cord injury is listed in that uh, group. It was interesting when we originally brought up this, uh, this concern, the Joint Commission uh, did their own investigation um, to determine if there, if it were, you know, if there were other groups besides spinal cord injury that needed to be included, and they found that uh, there were other groups uh, besides spinal cord injury, mostly neurogenic bladders, so things like EMS, spina bifida. Um, so I was I was really pleased with that outcome. At one point, I found it fascinating uh, that the CDC told you guys that maybe you should launch your own educational campaign with the American healthcare system in general, which is kind of interesting coming from an agency who that's their responsibility. Uh, yes. And uh, uh, you found that rather frustrating. Tell me about that. Yes. So, um, y you know, this is ultimately, this is a problem of people who don't know what they don't know are trying to do the right thing. I mean, the acute care hospitals are trying to reduce catheter-associated UTI rates, and they are being told hey, you know, there's a preference for removing catheters in, you know, most patients, including spinal cord patients. And spinal cord patients, you know, the, the CDC guidelines say, consider uh, intermittent catheterization for patients with spinal cord injury. It's a, it's a weak recommendation, but it's there. Uh, and it's not, there's not much expounding on that issue. And, and, and so, um, you know, that was one of the things that was recommended is that we could, you know, educate um, other healthcare providers on, you know, which spinal cord patients are appropriate for long-term indwelling catheterization, which patients are more appropriate for intermittent catheterizations, uh, and and uh, you know, what are the what are the uh, potential risks and benefits of that? Uh, the ironic thing is that the Consortium for Spinal Cord Medicine, uh, powered by the, the uh, Paralyzed Veterans of America, has been making great efforts to educate the, the medical community on uh, neurogenic bladder management and also on autonomic dysreflexia because it is a, a, can be a life-threatening condition. And uh, it is one that is frequently not well recognized by healthcare providers outside of the small subspecialty of spinal cord injury, you know, it's, it's prompted a lot of efforts that have already been ongoing for a long time to uh, improve awareness amongst uh, healthcare providers. And we've had very limited success in that. Matt, you've been at this four years now. Do you see a potential resolution? You know, I'm, I'm not sure. This, um, the financial penalty, the potential for financial penalty remains in place as things are currently written. And, you know, I guess the, the idealist would, would you know, in me would want to think that people would do the best things for their patients, uh, you know, assuming that we were able to educate people well on this, uh, that yes, people would absolutely do what was in the financial, would, 
people would do what was in the best interest for the health of their patients. And I, I think certainly that is the case. I, I think that the fact that there is this financial incentive mm -hmm. to remove indwelling catheters early on in the hospitalization um, corrupts the decision-making process. I think it, it makes people uh, more likely to be overly optimistic about the hospital staff's ability uh, to properly manage neurogenic bladder. I mean, we in on our spinal cord injury unit at Tier, neurogenic bladder is managed by certified rehab nurses. I mean, these nurses have special training to and special certification uh, to manage neurogenic bladder. And you know, you're not going to have certified rehab nurses in an acute care hospital. It's quite a conundrum. So these measures were sincerely meant to help, not to harm. You make a strong case that we've really got to improve the way quality measures deal with their own adverse consequences. Maybe quality measures need their own quality measures. Now, Matt, this podcast goes out to a lot of rehab specialists of all stripes, uh, we sincerely hope. Um, and surely some of our listeners can help your cause. What can they do? I think one thing that would be helpful to our effort, uh, something that we are frequently asked um, by, you know, the different people that we end up talking with on the phone is, what is the evidence you have of patient harm? And I think it's been a real challenge gathering evidence because the people who are uh, most responsible for, uh, for um, monitoring for this type of harm are the same people who are unaware that the harm is going on. And so it's it's really hard to, to document that. So I have you know, collected a case series of patients who have had adverse outcomes related to this. Uh, and I guess if there are people listening to this podcast who uh, have other stories of patients who've had adverse events related to having their catheters uh, removed by inexpert staff, I would love to hear about it. Uh, I can be contacted at my email. My email is Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot E dot Davis at uth.tmc.edu. All right. Well, you heard it. Rehab World, uh, please contact Dr. Davis directly if you've seen this issue yourself, and we'll see what happens next. We've all got our fingers crossed. Uh, again, thank you very much for joining me today on the Rehabcast, Dr. Davis. Yeah, thank you. Next, we're moving up from Houston to Seattle for a chat with Dr. Jana Friedley. She's an associate professor of rehabilitation medicine at the University of Washington, and she's co-director of the Comparative Effectiveness Cost and Outcomes Research Center there. Jana is the lead author of our featured study, ripped straight from the pages of the August issue of the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. Thanks for joining us today, Jana. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about your randomized trial of the long-term effects of repeated injections of anesthetic with or without corticosteroid for lumbar spinal stenosis. Uh, as you write, this is a very common procedure in the Medicare population in particular. Lumbar stenosis is a major cause of morbidity in the population in general, and steroid injections are really a mainstay of treatment. You first published your initial results of your trial in the New England Journal back in 2014. Uh, would you tell me a little bit about that publication and the reception that it got amongst the community of folks treating this condition? 
Uh, sure. Um, so uh, we conducted a, uh, a large multi-center clinical trial, as, as you mentioned, of uh, epidural steroid injections with corticosteroid and lidocaine compared to epidural injections of lidocaine alone. And this was a trial that was funded by HRQ and PCORI um, and was designed as a pragmatic uh, clinical uh, trial that was really um, trying to mirror actual clinical practice. So we were really trying to study what the effects of the steroid injections were uh, as they are performed across the United States in actual clinical practice. Um, we, we completed the study um, uh, and published our initial uh, primary results in the New England Journal in 2014. And I think the results of the, the trial at that point were fairly surprising to people. As you mentioned, this is a commonly used treatment for spinal stenosis. And, and the results were, were frankly disappointing. Um, they, we, we found that although both groups improved uh, by, by six weeks, uh, there really was no difference at six weeks between the two groups. So there was no added benefit to this steroid medication, which is commonly believed to be the active ingredient um, in, the, in, in this treatment um, and, and what is most effective for uh, reducing inflammation associated with uh, nerve root compression in, in spinal stenosis. Um, and uh, the, we, we, at, at the time that we published these results, uh, we, uh, we received widespread attention uh, for these results because they were they were not uh, they were not intuitive because we had been we have been using this treatment for many years and it's a well accepted treatment so it was surprising to people uh, to find that it was not as effective as they had uh, anticipated it to be and uh, and now what we're seeing is is the full realization at least of a, of a year's worth of data and the results again are very similar to, to what you saw before. Are there any big differences at what you're seeing a year out versus that initial uh, six-week study? Well, I think uh, what we're seeing certainly is the continuation. We, we, we saw that there was an initial benefit to um, either treatment uh, in the first three to six weeks after treatment. Um, uh, but by six weeks, there really was no difference between the, the, the two groups. I, I should add that at, uh, early at, at three weeks, we did see a very small difference um, in outcomes in between the two groups. And the, the people that received the steroid, on average, were about one point better on the, the Roland Morris uh, disability uh, questionnaire. Um, and this is a this is a questionnaire that we use to assess uh, back related disability, and and the scale goes from zero to twenty four, uh, with twenty four representing the worst disability and zero representing no disability, and so a one point difference on this scale is really believed to be far below what we consider to be minimally Im uh, clinically important. What do you think explains that three week mark change, and and is that meaningful? Well, I I think what we saw was that there was. Regardless of the mechanism of action, um, there was really a small, very small added benefit to the steroid medication um, at, at three weeks, and that difference disappeared by, by six weeks. So whatever benefit there was to the steroid, um, in addition to the, the lidocaine, was, was very small. Um, and and why, what, why there was that, that small benefit, we're not, we're not sure. It, it, uh, people believe that it's the anti-inflammatory effect of the steroid um, but there may be other systemic effects of the steroid that improves people's mood or perception of things that that certainly influences their outcomes. Um, but in in regardless of the mechanism, th that difference was really small, and we really only saw it at at three weeks. 
um, beyond three weeks, there was there was no added benefit of of the steroid whatsoever um, between the two groups, and that that persisted through one year. So I, I think from looking at the long term um, outcomes, I think what was important in this trial um, is that in in addition to the fact that there was no difference between the, the two groups at 12 months, there was no difference in terms of surgery rates or opioid use and. One of the common arguments for using steroid injections, uh, particularly in this older adult population, is that um, it is believed that use of these steroid injections can prevent unnecessary surgeries uh, that are that uh, may be costly and risky um, and associated with poor outcomes, um, and also with opioid use, which is, uh, is obviously a concern uh, for everyone, and particularly in this older adult population. Um, and we just didn't see that there was that that, that uh, bore out in our trial that there was any added benefit to the steroid uh, uh, in preventing opioid use or steroid uh, or surgery rates uh, in, in this population. So that was one Im- important finding. Um, the the other thing that's important to remember about this trial is that uh, after our primary outcome at six weeks, we did offer crossover. Um, so we allowed patients to crossover to receive the opposite treatment after we collected our primary outcome at six weeks. And we did this uh, uh, primarily to uh, entice people to participate in the trial and allowing them to make sure that they would uh, have the opportunity to receive uh, the uh, perceived active treatment at some point during the trial. but this design really complicates the analysis. And so um, we, we, at six weeks, um, we allowed people to cross over. Uh, they were still blinded to the treatment, so they didn't know which treatment they received at baseline, and they didn't know which treatment they were being uh, crossed over to. Um, but w- what we did see is that if, uh, a substantial proportion in, in both groups um, opted to cross over, um, and a, a higher percentage of people who received the lidocaine injections initially did uh, opt to cross over to receive the, the steroid injections. And, and sometimes that's perceived as, a, as an outcome in, its, in itself. If people are uh, essentially choosing to, to switch over uh, at a higher rate um, to the active treatment, it suggests that the uh, comparator treatment or the placebo treatment was not as effective for them. Um, in, our, in our trial, we, we saw that effect only at one out of our 16 sites. Um, and so, in in one small subsection of the uh, uh, of the study, we uh, we did see a uh, a differential crossover uh, rate. But in the rest of the the trial, uh, the the rates were uh, identical between the two groups. What kind of numbers are we talking about uh, that are really wanting to cross over people who weren't satisfied with either treatment, even though they didn't know what they got? It, it wasn't a majority, but in the the steroid group, thirty um, percent of patients opted to cross over, and in the lidocaine group, forty five percent of patients opted uh, to cross over at six weeks. So a substantial uh, proportion of patients did not re- receive the or did not obtain the uh, the results that they had hoped and opted to cross over. And and I think most importantly, regardless of which direction they crossed over, whether they received the steroid initially and crossed over to lidocaine or if they received the lidocaine initially and crossed over to steroid, um, their their outcomes were poor um, in general. So these were there was something different about this that group of patients that opted to cross over. Um, they were the ones who did uh, poorly uh, after their first injection, and regardless of what the injection was, they still continued to do poorly. Um, and so for for me, that that reflects that this is a 
really a, a characteristic of the patients uh, at, rather than a characteristic of the treatment itself. Now, the study does not include a sham arm, and I would have to assume that you would have loved to have been able to do that, but that type of study would have just been pretty much impossible to put together at these numbers. Well, I, I think this is also one of the most interesting and controversial aspects of this trial and, and one that has uh, an issue that has been debated uh, at length in many, many different uh, uh, forums. Um, so I think there are differing beliefs about whether or not a lidocaine, an epidural lidocaine injection is a sham treatment or a placebo. Um, there are some people that believe that an epidural lidocaine injection is an active treatment, meaning that it's it is an acceptable form of treatment for spinal stenosis, and uh, the lidocaine itself, despite having a very short half-life, does have long-term uh, effects on, on pain and, and function. And then there's another group of people that believe that the lidocaine injections are actually a, a placebo or a sham uh, treatment, and that they, there is no uh, biologic evidence that lidocaine has any lasting effect on pain and function. So any benefit? Which group are you in? <laughs> well, it's a good it's a good question. So I I think there is very little evidence that lidocaine has lasting, long lasting uh, effects on pain and and function. Um, the lidocaine itself has a very short half life. Um, and although there are anecdotal reports of people receiving benefit long-term from treatment with lidocaine, uh, the, the biologic plausibility for me is, is not there. So, so I, I am of the belief that the, the biggest effect of the epidural uh, lidocaine injections is probably reflects a placebo effect. Um, but there's no way to tell that uh, definitively from our, our trial, um, and, and you would need to conduct a trial of a different des design to really be able to tease that out. Um, but imp importantly, what our, our trial did show was that because there's no added benefit to the steroid, an epidural lidocaine injection may offer the same benefits that an epidural steroid injection uh, offers, uh, but without the potential side effects that we saw with the, with the steroid. And particularly in this older population that may be at higher risk of having complications from cortisol suppression and the systemic effects of the steroid, and particularly with repeat um, uh, injections and, and repeat treatments with steroids, um, an epidural lidocaine uh, injection may be a viable option uh, for them to provide the similar benefit without the side effects. Are you uh, willing and able to argue that between the first uh, publication and now, this one, uh, a year's worth of, of outcomes, that this should this data should really start to influence practice at this point. I definitely think it should influence practice. I, I think in a number of different ways, and and some of the key key findings that I think are important to consider for changes in clinical practice are, in, in addition to uh, the the possibility of using an epidural lidocaine alone injection, particularly for patients that are at higher risk. Uh, for uh, side effects from steroids um, or in patients that are having repeat injections or have other uh, uh, ha are, are getting steroid in other uh, forms of administration. So people who are uh, getting inhaled, uh, chronic inhaled steroids or getting injections of steroids in other joints, um, an epidural lidocaine alone injection may be a, a viable option to help try to prevent side effects. So I think that's that's one key finding. The, the other key finding that we haven't discussed yet is that 
um, we, we allowed uh, physicians to choose whether they would treat patients with a transferaminal approach injection or an interlaminar approach injection. And in our trial, um, and this was also a surprising finding, uh, people who received the interlaminar injection um, did better than the people that received the transferaminal uh, approach injection. So that early benefit at three weeks um, that we saw, the very small benefit um, of, of the steroid injection was only seen in the interlaminar approach. And in general, regardless of whether you had steroid or not, people did worse with the transferaminal approach injections. So, so in, ad in addition to um, the, the interlaminar approach injections being superior, I think the other key findings in the trial that are important to consider and, and that may influence clinical practice are that the type of steroid does seem to matter um, in terms of uh, both the, uh, the effectiveness as well as the, si the potential side effects. And, and this is another surprising, uh, uh, relatively surprising um, finding of the, of the trial, that people who were treated with methylprednisolone or triamcinolone tended to have uh, higher, much higher rates of cortisol suppression uh, than, uh, than folks who received uh, either betamethasone or dexamethasone. And on the conversely, uh, the outcomes were slightly better uh, with uh, triamcinolone and dexamethasone. Uh, outcomes were slightly better with uh, triamcinolone and uh, methylprednisolone. So this su suggests that those two particulate um, uh, steroid medications seem to have slightly better uh, outcomes, uh, but also are associated with uh, higher rates of systemic effects. Uh, and, and then finally, the other key key finding that we found is that if you did not improve with, a, with the first injection, um, you are unlikely to improve with any subsequent injections. And so uh, historically, um, epidural steroid injections have been performed in a series of three, meaning that regardless of how you do after the first one, patients will still get a second one or a third one, thinking that uh, those repeated injections will have some, some kind of additive benefit. Um, and our, our trial really suggests that after the first one, if you don't see a benefit in the, uh, with the first injection, um, there really is no uh, added benefit to having a second or third injection. And, and so I think the combination of those things uh, really should influence clinical practice. The reality is that, um, and we have studied this over the last uh, year, um, by surveying uh, spine specialists across the United States about uh, their understanding of the, the, the trial results and whether or not they have incorporated the results into their clinical practice. And unfortunately, uh, it, we still have a lot of work to do uh, uh, in terms of disseminating this information uh, because the majority of people were, uh, have not been aware of the results of this trial. Uh, well, we're hoping this, this podcast is going to change everything. <laughs> that's that's what we're hoping. This is part of part of di really disseminating the information so that people can uh, can read it and absorb it and try to um, see how it applies to their clinical practice. Um, but we also found that the the, the people who are aware of the trial, uh, e even those people, have not adopted uh, the findings into their clinical practice. And th there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot of barriers to doing this. Again, this is a this is a, a treatment that is commonly used and is well entrenched into our medical practice. And so uh, findings that are contrary to what we have uh, historically been doing uh, are harder to implement into, into clinical practice and harder to change clinical practice. Um, we have worked on uh, a number of uh, systematic reviews that have been published since the time of our uh, our trial. 
um, including an ARC-sponsored uh, systematic review uh, that was published uh, just last year. Uh, and and that, I think, is starting to help to uh, to disseminate the, these findings more broadly. Um, and in fact, uh, Washington State and Oregon State have also uh, undergone uh, review of their uh, coverage policies for uh, epidural steroid injections and have incorporated the results of the trial into those assessments as well. What ought to be the next step to investigate lumbar spinal stenosis injections further? I actually think that the next step would be to do a trial of epidural lidocaine injections versus a true sham uh, procedure to really sort out whether or not uh, the lidocaine itself is an active ingredient or if that is a placebo. And I think that that would answer a lot of the the, the un, unanswered questions uh, from, from this trial. And, and then I think really the next step from my perspective is, is studying alternatives to uh, epidural steroid injections for people with spinal stenosis. One of the common things that we hear is that uh, patients and providers are frustrated because there aren't very many uh, successful treatment options for, for people with spinal stenosis. And so really focusing attention on uh, uh, alternative treatments that may be effective, I think, is important. Yeah. And so this is probably for the volume uh, that, that we see of this problem, would you say it's a relatively neglected area in terms of research, you know, uh, new treatments coming out. Uh, obviously, we don't have many uh, for lumbar spinal stenosis. Absolutely. So I think that there's there's a lot of opportunity for, for future studies that are focused on um, uh, on lumbar spinal stenosis and, and, and really looking at alternatives to surgery and, and to uh, more invasive uh, procedures and including minimally invasive procedures like, like steroid injections. I would love to see some additional studies that are focused on, on exercise-based treatments and how to, to really engage this older adult population in, in exercise in a way that's going to be effective for this particular uh, chronic condition. Excellent. Well, it's important work, and uh, thank you very much for this fantastic summary. And this is going to be, uh, I think, of great interest to many of our listeners who uh, have no doubt uh, seen this problem in their own practice. And, and who knows, uh, maybe it'll help uh, get the word out and, and influence practice just a little bit uh, every uh, chip at the wall counts, right? <laughs> yes, I agree. And thank you very much for allowing me to uh, take the time to uh, explain the study. All right, everybody, that's it for this August 2017 edition of the Rehab Cast. This program is here to serve you, the rehabilitation medicine community. And if there's anything you want to hear us talk about or join the podcast yourself, shoot me an email at docbox at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we hope you're enjoying the program. Please rate us highly on your favorite podcast app. Till next time. This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Atlanta, October 2017, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org.